0: I'm going to need my Bible. I left it over here. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 3 and 4. That's where we're going to continue our conversation today. We're going to cover some territory, two chapters today in our discussion. Um, and we'll spend most of our time in chapter 4, but I've got to le- read a little bit of chapter 3 for you to make sure that we you have context why chapter 4 is happening. And I'm getting the wave down from the back, which means it's Fam Jam weekend. I should have known that. Didn't our kids do an awesome job up here this morning? We love... So uh, uh, elementary, preschool-age kids, uh, now's the opportunity to take off with the Jam team. Or not the Jam team, the Kids Life team. We rebranded that like a year ago. Get, to, get with the program, Dustin. Um, and so I'm thankful for those kids. By the way, for those of you that are new to Grace, we don't do child care. Um, we don't do babysitting. We do children's ministry. So what happens is, like, these kids... Um, they are in, in having their church right now. They're, under, they're learning the Word of God, understanding the love of Jesus, understanding what it looks like to walk with Jesus in a language that's relevant to them and their culture. And quite honestly, our goal in here is the exact same thing. Um, so I'm, we're trying to speak a language that's relevant to you in your life and in your season of life uh, as we learn how to digest the Word of God and learn to live it out in faithfulness to Him. And so Uh, If your kids aren't involved in children's ministry, I can't encourage you enough to get them connected on Sundays and Wednesdays, Um, and I I would encourage uh, those of you who are here uh, without the youngins, uh, even so, be praying for those children's ministry team, be praying for our kids. This is the next generation. If some of y'all are concerned about the future of our country because of what you see on the news related to kids, related to teens. You need to come hang out with some of our teens and some of our kids, and you will know that God has placed us in good hands, and he is going to lead the way through them. Um, We have some culture changers and some kingdom influencers that are coming up through the ranks, and so we want to continue to make that investment in them. Uh, Today's day 21, Uh, 21 days of fasting and prayer. How y'all doing? How you doing online? Uh, Welcome. If you're watching on Facebook, click the share button. YouTube, click the subscribe button. If you're watching the podcast, click the subscribe button. Uh, We're so glad that y'all have tuned in with us. We are on the 21st day of fasting and prayer together. Um, And I'm hoping and trusting that God has been speaking to some of you. I've heard some stories from some people about how God has been dealing with them and kind of opening their heart to God's work in their life. I bet you there's some of you that need to continue Beyond today, continue fasting and praying and seeking God as you are working on nourishing that relationship with Him. Maybe God's in the middle of something with you, and you know it, so don't pull the plug on this forum that you are meeting with God in called Fasting and Prayer. I hope that you'll continue to press into that uh, until you and the Lord agree together that it's time for you to round out that season of fasting and prayer. Speaking of which, uh, today being day 21, Um, What we do typically, and we're going to do it again today at two o'clock today, we're going to meet downtown on the courthouse lawn with the community of churches, um, those that are going to participate uh, for a time of prayer together as a large group outside. And so I hope that you'll leave here after service today, go grab you some brunch or lunch or whatever, meet us at the courthouse downtown Seaburn at two o'clock. We'll spend some time together in prayer for our families, our churches, our our cities, our country, our leadership, um, and just continue as the church of Jesus Christ to submit those things over to him. So I hope you'll tune in with us there. Um, Pastor Jake, um, Jake and Jesse Schwartfiger are African missionaries uh, with Overland. uh, They're going to be here next Sunday. Next Sunday, the 7th, so I'll get to share some time on stage with Jake and maybe Jesse as well, just talking about what God has been doing in and through them. You're going to get to see the book of Acts come to life in a way that you wouldn't otherwise get to see um, by just getting to hear some of the stories of what God is doing through their team all over the world. Jake and Jesse oversee about 240 missionaries all over the world. We partner with them, their home base is in Zambia, Africa, Um, And as a matter of fact, one of our own staff members, Lauren, who is our preschool lead. um, Lauren, yeah, whoop, 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 yep. Lauren, uh, our preschool lead, she has felt the call of God on her life to go into the foreign mission field. So she just about two months ago got back from like Navy SEAL missionary boot camp training called Advanced Missionary Training with the Overland team. Uh, We'll get her up here one of these days to talk more about it. But anyway, she's going to be here with us for about the next year, continuing to serve as our preschool lead as she prepares for and raises funds to get out into the foreign mission field. Um, But I'm excited that one of our own staff members here has heard the call of God in their life and is now going to step in to an unknown world for the sake of the gospel. And so we'll celebrate that here pretty soon. We get to spend a little bit of time with Lauren. But Jake and Jesse oversee all that. You'll get a chance to meet them. Next week. So I hope that you'll be here in person, or if you're traveling or whatever, tune in online. Again, Facebook, YouTube, our website. The podcast is usually up by Monday. You can listen back. But, anyways, you have your Bible. By now, hopefully, you are in Acts chapter 3. These last two weeks have been some, um, I'd say, maybe some sobering talk for us. It's definitely sobering talk for the condition of the American church. In um, just these last two weeks, just looking at the first two chapters of Acts, we've really looked at like God's call, God's everyday call, God's ordinary call on the life of everybody that considers themselves a believer and a follower of Jesus, the call to be a missionary. And I'm not, some of y'all may never, may never touch African bush soil. You may never go to Haiti. But God has still called us to be missionaries right where he's planted us. Th- this is our mission field. Wherever it is God has stuck you, whatever grocery line you find yourself walking through week after week, uh, that's part of your mission field that God has like divinely strategized and put you in for his glory and for the good of the gospel that it would continue to go forth. And so these last two weeks, we just we had some heart-to-hearts about like we're not going to just be a country club American church. that's just sitting back that has the ultimate aim of trying to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. So let me tell you, we have a lot of new folks that have started coming in GBC. I keep meeting new families all the time. Like, if you're looking for a church family that is going to create an environment that is as comfortable as possible for Christian people, you ain't going to like this one here. This ain't what we're going to do. Our aim here is not to make us as comfortable as possible. Our aim here is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we take the gospel into the world around us. And that is extraordinarily uncomfortable. Our resources and our decisions and our elder leadership and our planning is all going to revolve around the great commission that Jesus told us and called us to, to go and make disciples. Because we know that he's given us the power of his Holy Spirit to be missionaries in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In our neighborhoods, in our towns, and our county, in our state, and across the United States, that is our mission. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ And one another, and that is costly, and that is uncomfortable, and that can be difficult, and I hope that you are in with us, because we're not stopping. This is where we are going. And so we're studying through the book of Acts, like just to be reminded what it looked like when the people of Jesus like first experienced the power of God, first experienced the Holy Spirit living within them and what that was like, man, how, how, how that affected their conversations, how that affected the way that they handled their resources, how they dealt with the, the struggling leadership environments of the cultures that they lived in, how they dealt with one another. And like, so this is what we get to see uh, as we're studying through the book of Acts. And I, I would venture to say that some of you in hearing what we've been talking about over the next few weeks, much less the last few minutes, some of y'all are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what it's all about. And many of us are like, oh, no. Like, what's this going to look like? Like, I think that's right and good, and and, and that sounds good, and I can see it in the Word of God. But Dustin, how about you go be the missionary and tell us how it goes? Like, that makes for better sermons. Tell us what happened. No, but that's not the call. I'm just, I'm just one amongst the body of Christ. So we are the body of Christ. This is the church, not the building, the people. We are the ecclesia, the movement that God has created and empowered with his Holy Spirit to go tell the world about the good news that there is one. The king of all kings came to rescue us and pay the price for our sins through his death on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, and he sits on the highest throne that there has ever been or ever will be to this very day. And there is good news because he has come to rescue whosoever would believe in him. It's an easy story to tell. But I know that some of us, myself included, sometimes we just kind of lack the courage. We don't know where to start. How do, we, how do we have gospel conversations with people in the ordinary stuff of life without being weird? You know what I'm saying? With like just interrupting conversations with, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? You know what I'm saying? Like stuff like that. You know, it's like, We're going to learn how to speak the gospel into the everyday stuff of life, a relevant language that is still alive and well today so that the world might know how Jesus informs the hardest stuff that they're experiencing in this thing called life so that they might come to know that Jesus really is the answer, the gospel really is the answer to everything that we're experiencing in this thing called earth. I'm calling this just for the sake of making sure we know who I'm talking to. I'm calling this today a message to the underqualified to the underqualified. Some of y'all hear, hear us calling, calling the church to be disciple makers and be missionaries and like, yeah, it's about time. Like that's, I'm all about that stuff. And a lot of us are kind of like, oh, it's intimidating. Like, I don't know. I feel a little underqualified. I don't know where to start. I don't feel like I'm equipped. I don't feel like I have the tools to do that. It's a little uncomfortable. It's a little awkward. This here is a message to the underqualified And which, by the way, like I, I wanted to let you know like one of the most underqualified people that is in this room is the guy standing on this stage. And that's not just me trying to be cool and get on your level, all right? It's for real. Like, I feel the burden of my underqualification all the time. Some of you that are new to Grace Bible may not know my story. Some of y'all do because you've grown up with me. You were here when I moved here when I was 23 years old, and you've watched me grow into the role that I'm in right now in our church and community. But, like, let's be honest. Like, I, on paper, I don't fit, and I'm not qualified for any of this stuff that's happening. It's been by the mercies of God only that this thing even works. I mean, this train should have went off the rails a long time ago. <laughs> when I first came to Grace Bible, I was in school getting an undergraduate degree in business. I was planning on going to the corporate world. I love the church, and I figured I'd hold the doors, and I'd teach Sunday, in, Sunday school and just do it because I love it. And I love the people and I believe in the mission of the gospel, but like I wanted to be in the corporate world because I had a burden to reach people outside the church. Like, and still, the calling on my life, I feel, is to reach not church people. And so, as I've been like doing that, like I I was working through my graduate degree, I graduated a degree in business. Uh, One of our deacons really encouraged me to continue my education. He says, Man, you need to get into the master's program. So, I went on the master's program, I got an MBA. About that time, Grace Bible had grown to a place where it needed an executive pastor, which was, a pe- which was like a nice transition for me because I can, I can exercise my new business knowledge in an environment that I'm familiar with. So I became the executive pastor of Grace Bible, like just running the operations and the business and managing the employees of Grace Bible Church. And then our lead pastor at the time stepped down, and I stepped in and became the interim for a while. And that was eight and a half years ago. <laughs> and I'm still the interim, man. i, I I'm playing, but like, so, well, that's great. Uh, thank y'all. Thank you. That, that wasn't the point. I appreciate the love. I wasn't trying to get no love. My, my point was being that like, man, I haven't been to seminary. I've never written a book. Uh, I, I, am, I am challenging myself to be a reader and to be a learner, because I, I like bypass that season of life. I, I I'll be honest with you, like I don't have any desire to go to seminary. Like if God showed up in the flesh and told me to go, I would go. <laughs> but like, pre-grace Bible, of course, like, you know, pre-grace Bible, of course. Like I took one Bible class, it was called Intro to the Bible, which I thought that'll be a piece of cake, knowing the Ark, Jonah and the Well, I'll ace that. Hardest class I ever took in my life. Cheated off an atheist kid the whole time. <laughs> like. I'm glad you laughed because I'm sure somebody's really offended by that. Like, I'm just being honest with you. This is a message to the underqualified. Like, I I embody not being qualified for doing what I'm doing, but for whatever reason, when the Holy Spirit came upon me in my life, he had appointed out a journey for me, part of which led me to this very stage right now to be declaring the gospel over you in an underqualified state. If I wasn't already your lead pastor, you would not hire me to be it. I wouldn't even make it through the first round of interviews, you know what I'm saying? I'm not qualified for this in any stretch of the imagination, and so I bet some of you probably feel the same way when I say that every single one of us is called to be a disciple-making missionary in the kingdom of God. Wherever he has put us, I get the feeling that you feel because I'm one of you. I didn't mean for this to happen in my life. This was God's design. My plans were totally different and your plans might be totally different too, but while you are going, God has called you to be a disciple maker. To share the gospel and the mercies of God in every nook and cranny of the world that God has placed you in. And so, this, Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, we're going to call a message and encouragement to those of us who are the underqualified. And it starts like this. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and a man who had been lame from birth, he had been crippled his whole life. Uh, He he was being carried because he was laid daily. They set him down daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, say beautiful gate. Now this is what he did every day. This is how he made a living. He asked for alms, so that's like money, saying, hey, I, I need some money. He was a beggar by profession. There were no other options in his culture So he's asking for alms at the temple gate as people continue to walk into the temple. Now, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he also asked to receive alms from them. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, hey, hey, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said these famous and beautiful words, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. Say leaping up. Leaping up. So he just hopped right up. It's not like he eased on up. Like they had to grab a walker for the guy. Like he just leaped up and he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. Apparently this guy likes to leap. I guess I would too if I had been crippled my whole life. All the people that saw him walked and praised God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. Say the beautiful gate. At the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Like he had always been there his whole life. He had been there their whole life. This guy was a lot older when this happened to him. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, he stuck close to them, of course. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together To them in the portico called Solomon. Stop right there for just a second. That word portico means porch. There's a place in the Temple of Jerusalem in the outermost courts called Solomon's Porch or the Portico of Solomon. Okay, this porch is on the east side of the temple and the porch faces what's called the beautiful gate. Say the beautiful gate. Now, some of you that have grown up around church and you may have heard um, at some revival somewhere that the term the Eastern Gate okay? The eastern gate is also the beautiful gate. Solomon's porch faces the eastern gate, which if you go out the eastern gate from the temple, you'd be looking at the Mount of Olives. Now, why this is important is Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he gave us the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, right before he ascended into heaven. That was the Mount of Olives, all right? When Jesus first came into Jerusalem, he entered into the temple through the eastern gate. And when he comes back, According to Zechariah and Ezekiel, he is going to descend, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to enter back through the eastern gate. That's why they call it the beautiful gate. And he's going to come into the temple. So this is why New Testament Christians, very early on when the church was brand new, they would meet and gather at Solomon's porch so that they were having church looking at the eastern gate, beholding the Mount of Olives, waiting for Jesus to come back during church. That's why that's so significant in this moment in the story. Now, what we just saw was a miracle healing that just took place, didn't we? we saw, it was actually kind of a double healing, all right? I'll explain that. First of all, we saw a guy who had been crippled his entire life since birth hop up off the ground and go skipping through the temple halls. Miracle number one. Miracle number two, as you continue to read on your own, you're going to see at the end of chapter four that this guy was over the age of 40 years old. Now, why that's significant is the fact that the average man back in those days lived between 35 and 40 years. So, not only was this guy beyond his expiration date, God had preserved his life beyond the average for the sake of healing him from this ailment so that he could skip through the halls of Jerusalem and people would know that Christ is king. A double miracle. Do you believe that God still performs miracles like that? Don't lie now. Don't be all churchy on me. Don't y'all do that to me. Do y'all believe in your heart of hearts that God still performs miracles in people's lives? I definitely believe it. I alluded to one just last week, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it now just in light of what we're studying right here. Uh, not only does the Spirit of God continue to perform unexplainable miracles in people's lives, but he did one right here at Grace Bible Church just a couple of weeks ago. Now, our elders, we, we pray over people all the time. Um, and, and we pray, we, we'll have whole nights where we'll just come in and we'll pray over people, we'll anoint them with oil, lay hands on them. Like, we'll, we'll just follow the prescription of the Scriptures that we're given in James chapter five. We leave it up to the Lord. We're not the type of people that tell God what he's gonna do, all right? We're we're not, we're not calling down, blabbing it and grabbing it and all that kind of stuff. Like we really, you know what I'm saying? Like we believe that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is the king on the throne. He's in heaven. We're on earth, so let our words be few. We don't tell God what he's gonna do. But we make our requests known to God in the way that he has told us to. And so our elders, we pray over people all the time. We've seen God do some extraordinary things, one of which was just a couple of weeks ago. We had a lady come to us and, and understood the scriptures, understood that like it might be God's perfect plan for her life not to be healed. But still, out of faithfulness to him and his word, she wanted to be prayed over by the elders, anointed with oil, and to ask God for supernatural healing over her body. As it turns out, she had just got the news that in her colon, she had cancerous tissue and precancerous tissue. So it ain't looking good. She was headed in the following week, all right, which would have been last week. She was headed in to have another scan on her body just to see like exactly what all the problems were, where all the cancer was. Um, and they were going to make a plan on how to like move towards treatment. So she came to us on the road to that and just asked, out of faithfulness to God's word, I don't know what his plan for my life is, but selfishly I want to be healed of this disease. And so we anointed with oil. We laid hands on her, and we prayed, and we asked that God would heal her. And wouldn't you know, my phone's ringing on Wednesday. She went back into her Thing to have a little scan to see where all the cancer was and how they needed to do treatment, they couldn't find any cancer in their body, it was totally gone, totally gone, just like that. So, now to all of you skeptics out there, you don't really believe that God can still heal, you're thinking coincidence, even right now. And what I just declared to you is much like this man in the ancient of days, like God still steps into into stories even with the miracle of 21st century medicine and miraculously heals people, all right? But let me tell you a little something about how God works. It was the same then as it is now. God never heals for the sake of the healing itself. His healing is always meant to be a pointer back to Jesus, That's why sometimes we see Jesus step in and heal everybody. Sometimes we see him heal one person and then hop on a boat to get away from everybody. Every time Jesus steps in and heals, whether it was last week or a couple thousand years ago, it's always to point people to Jesus. But guess what? So is your infirmities. So is our illnesses and our diseases and our brokenness. They were meant to be pointers to Jesus as well. So I'm wondering, like, if you're in that story and if you're wondering about, well, is God going to step in and heal my situation and my journey, let me ask you the question. Are you willing for him to use your life as a pointer back to Jesus, whether that means you being healed or whether that means you, like the Apostle Paul, having this perpetual thorn in your flesh, it just won't go away? Are you willing? Are you willing to trust him on that level? Do you believe in him that his ways are perfect and his ways are higher and his plan is divine? You believe that because he can heal you but who knows maybe he wants to use your very ailment as he did Paul's to point people to Jesus as well and so as you imagine everybody was looking at Peter and John with amazement like look at these guys and this is what he said in verse 12 why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made this man walk great response and then they go on to like preach Jesus and I would say the same to you listen um, though we have anointed people with oil and prayed for healing over their lives, the oil that we use is the same oil you cook with. It has no magical powers. And if you've met any of our elders, you know that they don't have any magical powers either. We are absolutely extraordinarily powerless. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and the decision of God as to how he wants to respond to every individual situation. And it's all for his glory. It is all meant to point to Jesus. And so they had these words with these people. Hey, it ain't us. Don't look at us. Look at Jesus. And so you're going to read this for homework this afternoon. The rest of chapter three is them pointing everybody back to Jesus. This was a work of God. The Jesus that you crucified, that God raised from the dead, he is still alive. He is still with us in his Holy Spirit, and he is still healing and saving and rescuing. And so that brings us to chapter four. I said, and as they were speaking to the temple, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's why the Sadducees are so sad, you see, because they don't, (laughs) that's so dumb, man. I don't know why I do that every time, you know, but you get what I'm saying. The Sadducees are so sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection, of Jesus, or by extension, the resurrection of the life of the believer, and so they arrested Peter and John, put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening time. But check this out, verse four. But many of those who had heard the word believed. These are people that showed up to the temple to go through like their religious regimen of like Jewish things. They saw the miracle of God. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it said, many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men that came to faith was about 5,000. That's a lot of people in one short sermon. Not to mention, like, just so you know, like the way the temple was designed, that outer court area, it wouldn't have just been men out there. There would have been women and children out there. People of other faiths, other religions would have showed up in that outer court as well. All right, that was kind of the outermost area of the temple. There were 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, who knows, like, the full census of how many people actually believed in Jesus Christ that day and gave their hearts to him as Lord and Savior. So here we got, like, the Sanhedrin shows back up as Peter and John are preaching to these people, and the Sanhedrin had to have been thinking, like, I thought we snuffed all this riffraff out when we crucified Jesus on the cross. I thought for sure, once we made a public spectacle of him through crucifixion, that all these Christians and all their talking would have been shut to the up, but apparently not. As a matter of fact, these people that witnessed this, they heard the gospel, there were thousands of them that gave their life to Jesus. They also witnessed Peter and John getting thrown into prison. They stood there and saw the whole thing. And what did they do? They took off running scared. No, they didn't. They started celebrating and praising what God had done. Things are getting really out of hand to the glory of God now. We need to get a little more out of hand for the glory of God right here at GBC. Are y'all awake? Could everybody stand with me for just a second? Just standing right quick. Just real quick. All right, you can sit back down. That was it. Just wanna, just wanted to wake y'all up. Trying to have church in here. Pretty powerful what God did in that moment. They threw Peter and John into prison, and it was like the rest of the people just continued. They confessed Jesus as the Lord of their life. We're praising God for what they had seen and heard. And it's like, that was like, I mean, them saying, like, if y'all going to throw them in jail, you might as well throw us in too. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're with it. We are with this. We believe in this. Our lives are being transformed by this in an instant. This was the response to the persecution of the people. And the persecution of Peter and John, verse 5, On the next day, their rulers, their elders, their scribes, they all gathered together in Jerusalem. So people had to travel for this trial that's about to happen for Peter and John. Annas the high priest was there. Caiaphas was there. John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family were there. And when they had set them in the midst, Peter and John, they were kind of in the midst. They were on trial as as all these powerful people are gathered around. They asked this question, by what power or by what name did you do this miracle? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, say filled with the Holy Spirit. My Baptist brothers and sisters need to say that a little bit louder, all right? My Pentecostal folks are like, yeah, filled with the Holy Spirit. Baptist folk, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm talking about. Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled guy, by what means this man has been healed, we'll let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified by the way, whom God raised from the dead, and y'all know about that too, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me ask y'all a question. Like, this isn't the first time we've seen a guy on trial in front of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, is it? Who's the last guy we saw on trial in front of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin? Who was it? There you go, best Sunday school answer, Jesus Yeah, it was just a few months ago. Jesus is standing on trial in front of Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. Now fast forward, Peter is standing on trial in front of Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. My question for you is, back when Jesus was on trial in front of Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, where was Peter? Well, he had already cut tail and run. He was trying to get out of Dodge as fast as he could. And anybody that stopped him to ask if he knew Jesus, he would deny, deny, deny. And it's not like Peter hadn't just told Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that all the other apostles may abandon you, but not me, man. I'm with it all the way into the end, even if it means death, Jesus. I ain't leaving your side. I'm with you all the way. And then Jesus is on trial with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and Peter is gone. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the Peter then and the Peter Now? Now, Peter, he's the one on trial, and he could have tried to talk his way out of it, but he didn't. He actually turned a trial into a church service and starts preaching the message of Jesus to the religious elite of the day. Like, what's the difference between Peter then and this Peter? Oh, the the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Peter back then had made a promise to Jesus, and with everything that's in him, listen to me now had made a commitment to Jesus, like, I'm going to walk with you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be in a relationship with you, it doesn't matter what everybody else does, I'm going to stick with you to the end. And just a couple hours go by and Peter's running the opposite, opposite direction of Jesus trying to save his own life. Well, it's because even with that commitment, that covenant that he made with Jesus, when Peter reached deep within himself and tried to dig up and muster as much courage and as much strength as he could to be faithful to Jesus, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. He ran woefully short of the capacity of being able to muster enough courage to walk faithfully with Jesus' call on his life. And then fast forward a few months, now Peter has the Holy Spirit of God in him, and he's standing on trial in front of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and he didn't even flinch. The power of the Holy Spirit had come upon Peter Just a couple of days before and was now indwelling inside of Peter and his courage and his want to and his words and his willingness, it all came from the vine, which is Jesus. We just saw Peter couldn't pull it off on his own, but he can pull it off with the power of the Holy Spirit in him. This is why I'm telling you, my friends, this is a message to the underprepared, the underqualified, the disqualified, the incapable, the I'm not sure know what to do yet. And we see it through the life of Peter, the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes upon us. And as much as we can learn something from Peter, I think we also need to learn something from the Sanhedrin here. So now I'm, I'm calling out to my lifelong Christ follower, Bible thumper, church-going, felt-bored kind of Christians in here. Okay? I got a question for y'all. Those of you that have been in church for like decades, that like you, you know the word and the ways of God. You've been walking with him forever. Like uh, we can learn something for Peter but we also need to learn something from the Sanhedrin. Let me ask you a couple questions right here. Is it possible that we could be so saturated with religion that we could actually miss God altogether? Is it possible that we could be spiritual but not spirit-filled? So what you're telling me is like, you could go through all the pious activities and religious regiments. You could have the best church attendance record. You could be the one leading the class, leading the small group, pastor in the church, elder in the church. You could be the religious authorities of the city that you are in and yet not know God. Like God could walk right in front of your face and you wouldn't even recognize him. You think that's possible? Yeah, and this reminds me, this, this passage right here as we look at the Sanhedrin, what we need to learn from them, this reminds me, this simple truth, if you checked out, check back in, this is it. Spiritual disciplines don't make us more precious to God. They make God more precious to us. I'm going to leave that up there for just a second. Spiritual disciplines don't make us more precious to God. You ain't getting heavenly credit because you went to the classes, because you taught the seminar, because you gave to the missionary. God's design for all those things isn't that you would become more precious to Him, but that He would become more precious to you because you are already precious in His sight. He is already madly in love with you, He is already stunned by your beauty because He created you fearfully and wonderfully just like He wanted you to be. And so He's given us the gift. He's given us the gift of our religious routines going to church, praying, fasting, getting into a small group, jumping into a DNA, leading Bible study, attending Bible study, serving, giving, like all of those things are meant to make God more precious in our sight. And if that's not happening, then what you have is a religion, not a relationship. You're no different than the sad you see, and I bet you are so sad you see, and I bet you spend most of your life pointing fingers at other Christians who are on the journey trying to walk faithfully with God because they haven't mastered religious failure like you have. And Jesus, when he comes upon us, the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes us and transforms us. And it's not just us that notice it's people around us. Here's the big difference. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, like, yeah, hey, man, what? that's kind of funny to me. I don't know. They perceived that these guys were uneducated and common men, probably the way some of y'all look at me. Um, they were astonished at these guys because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That was a difference. In other words, like these two guys, man, they were uneducated and common. They didn't have like a a rich and robust view of the eschatological ramifications of the the current day. They didn't understand the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. They had never seen a felt board graph. These guys guys couldn't make a compelling argument between complementarian and egalitarianism. They couldn't do that. All they know is they had been with Jesus. And you know how they knew that? You know how they knew that? This is so good. Because they had those cool Christian t-shirts on. (laughs) They knew it. They're like, those guys know Jesus, man. They got this this shirt, man. Or they had this really sweet tattoo of the resurrection on their shoulder. You know what I'm saying? Or a cross necklace hanging off their neck. Or a WWJD bracelet. Or maybe they showed up to lunch on Sunday in church clothes. That's how they knew that they had been with Jesus. No. How do they know they had been with Jesus? Man, their courage, their boldness. I tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to make us his witnesses, to step into the call of being disciple making missionaries wherever God has placed us, when the Holy Spirit, when you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life for the first time, you got 100% of the Holy Spirit. And you got every bit of his power and authority and his courage to pull this off. Now, what we're learning how to do is yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's the work of discipleship now. We've got it all. We've got the power of God in us. Now we just got to learn to submit to it. And he's calling us to be missionaries. The underqualified, the underprepared, the I'm not sure what to do next yet person. Right here. And so with Peter and John standing there on trial, no real evidence to convict them, and a once lame guy standing next to them, now standing, they had to let him go. And they gave them some conditions of their release. Verse eight, 18, so they called them and charged him not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That was it. We got to let you go. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't do any of that Jesus stuff anymore. You're out of here. And so this is what the apostles did, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. They reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, listen, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Stop right here. Instead of me reading this next part to you and talking about it, I actually want to do something that's an old tradition within the the Capital C Church. I want to do a responsive reading for this next part of the Scriptures. Reason being is because instead of me declaring it over you, I want us to declare it together out loud over one another. So pay close attention to what you're reading as we read these things aloud together. And I want you to notice, I want you to be looking for how these people responded to the chaos and the calamity in the world that they were living in when they knew that God had called them to be missionaries and disciple makers, but they didn't know what to do next. Pay close attention to make this real simple, all right? Um, for the parts that I'm going to read, I put me and for the part that you're going to read, I put you. Okay. I just didn't want us to get confused. Okay. Um, so here we go. And when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends. They reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Leave that right there. Meditate on that. Did you hear what you just declared? This is the prayer of the first century church is experiencing radical revival and great persecution had come upon them. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, They, they were in a... A situation where they're calling out to God in this section, and they're they're, they're crying out to God. They're saying, God, look at the grave condition of our people and our leadership and our city and our societies. Look at our country. It's a mess, God. But I wanted you to see that they don't pray like we pray. We just declared their prayer together. We prayed it together, and they weren't praying, oh, God, we need you to step in and fix Congress or the White House or our country, oh God. We need you to deal with the evil that's going on in our country, oh God. We need you to step in and rescue and be the hero of the day, oh God. That's not what they were praying, was it? They weren't reaching out to God saying, God, if you would, if you can fit it into your schedule, step into our society and make us comfortable again. They're actually crying out to God, saying, God, we know you are in control. So change our hearts and give us the courage. It's not like God couldn't break open the sky and send down 10,000 legions of angels to declare the good news of Jesus. He's done it before. He did it to some shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And it's not like he couldn't do it again. But instead, his master's strategy was to place his life, his existence, his power in you and me, and to send us out to the four corners of the world, every neighborhood, every grocery store, every ranch, every school, every classroom, every orange grove, so that the world would know that the glory of God had come to rescue the souls of those that would surrender their lives to him. And there is a king on the throne that is not up for election. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be topped. He is an everlasting king of all kings. And this was their prayer, so this is our prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we see the chaos. Things are getting pretty complicated. The church of Jesus Christ in America is not celebrated like it once was. And you're not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if this was your plan all along. And so, God, I cry out as they did for our people and the body of Christ nationwide. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that amidst our chaos that you would take us and use us as your own, that we would be your vessels for the gospel, for the hope of Jesus to be delivered to the world, and that you would give us great courage as you did, Peter, that your Holy Spirit in us would be our words and our courage and our strength and our resilience and whatever, come what may. You have planned for the whole process of this mess. God, glorify yourself in these people today. In Jesus' name.